All right. So we are going to be continuing our study this morning in Romans, and we are past chapter one now, but we are only to chapter three is where we'll be beginning. And I'm excited to do this. Uh, I've learned a lot. As I said last time I was up here, I'm always excited to come and take in the word, uh, whether I get to preach or whether I get to hear. Um, a lot more prepping and preaching than there is just in hearing, but I love uh, both of them. And so, and I just, I just want to reiterate something that has uh, sort of happened in our series so far. And Brent mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There, there might seem to be a sort of similarity with, with our sermons that you've heard us preach so far. They might seem the same. And the common thread that kind of is woven through the fabric of chapters one through three is sin. And I'm just going to admit to you that I don't like talking about sin. Um, I don't like facing the reality of sin. Uh, I don't even really like preaching on sin, um, but we must. And, you know, if someone said, hey, you can go preach a sermon, you can pick anything, I'd probably pick a lot of other things before I'd pick sin. But we can't skip it. Uh, we can't skip it, and there are a few really good reasons for that. The first one, and they should be obvious, the first one is that it's mentioned in Scripture. It is a central piece to understanding the gospel. You know, the faithful preacher will preach what's in the Word, not just what we want to hear out of the Word, but the whole counsel of God. You know, it's been said, and I, I saw this, I think, I think it was on Facebook or something a few months ago, that there are only two kinds of preachers, ones who preach the Bible and those that need to resign. And we think, <laughs> we think about that, it's like, ooh, but that's the truth. We need to preach the whole counsel of God. And I'm thankful to be part of a group of men um, who have done that for a number of years. The truth of God isn't always exactly what we want to hear, but we need to hear it. So I'm thankful for Brent's example over the years as he's faithfully given us the whole counsel of God. And the other reason we just can't skip over it is because it's critical to understand the consequences of sin in order to understand the rescue that's in the gospel. I believe Brent mentioned a couple of weeks ago the Puritan Thomas Watson. He said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That is to say, until we understand the horribleness, the ugliness, the wretchedness of our sin, we can never fully understand the amazing beauty in God's grace. We can never understand the amazing gift that is really there. It was also said a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again, that until we recognize our sinful condition before God, the gospel really isn't good news. Until I realize I'm condemned and need saving, it's just kind of news. It's information. To say it another way, you can't take the cure until you understand you have the disease. So we don't skip over this because it's the central theme, and it's a theme in Scripture, and it's certainly a theme in chapters 1 through 3 in Romans here. Man is a sinner condemned by God for that sin. But church, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged because right around the corner, I promise we're getting there, right around the corner in this very chapter, Paul turns and gives us the good news after he's led us sufficiently through the bad, but we're just not quite there yet, so... Hang on, we got a couple more weeks. So where have we been? Let me just go through a quick reminder, quick review. If we remember chapter 1, Paul talks about the condemnation of the immoral, non-religious sort of pagan guy that's just living the life that he wants to without regard to anything else. It's a worldly individual, 
and, and that's just, they're doing what they want to do, could care less about God, and it's easy for us to get behind their condemnation as we see that. And then chapter 2 then points to the moral man who even might have religion and, and be on the up and up, so to speak, but Paul points out that that religion can't save. Then sort of in the middle of chapter 2, Paul mentions the Jew, the moral religious Jew, and they too are also condemned. So in essence, Paul has condemned the Jew, he's condemned the moral person, and he's condemned the worldly pagan, in short, everyone, everyone. They're all in the same boat. No one can find security in their lifestyle or religion because that will not save them. And even though the Jews are God's chosen people, he finished, Paul finished chapter 2 saying that you can be part of the covenant people and still be lost. You can have the law of God and, and be unsaved because you still have a sin issue because it comes down to a personalized relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a set of rules or regulations or rituals or anything like that. It's a personal relationship with Christ. So Paul has laid it out for them to understand the bad news. So now as we begin chapter 3, what we get is Paul's response to the objections he knows are coming. <laughs> so he's laid out some heavy stuff. And these are objections that Paul knows is going to be there. I think it's safe to say that Paul has preached this message before. Therefore, he knows what the experienced preacher that he is knows what kind of flack, I guess, he's going to get, what the objections are that are coming his way. So he's sort of responding before they're asked, we could say. Paul's a pretty smart guy, definitely knows this is going to happen, because what he has said has caused a stir, no doubt. He's kind of thrown a grenade in everything. You might say, to put it in the language of our day, that Paul was being culturally insensitive. That's what Paul was doing, and he wasn't afraid to do so because he was speaking the truth, and even though the truth offended, and it wasn't exactly what the people wanted to hear, they needed to, because truth or God's word should be priority, and Paul was not afraid to speak it. Neither should we. Yet there was going to be some objections, and he knew that. So chapters 3, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where we're going to be at this morning is our text, we will see Paul answer a few questions before they were really asked. So to put this in outline form, if you like taking notes, I'm going to sort of wrap this up. They said that really the attack here is Paul is attacking God's integrity. That's sort of the umbrella that what this falls under. They would say, Paul, you're attacking the integrity of God. And then if we, if we want to like narrow that down even more, specifically the integrity of God that he was attacking, they would say, well, you're attacking God's integrity because you're attacking God's chosen people. You're attacking the Jews. You're attacking uh, his people that he's chosen. And they'd say you're attacking the promises of God, like what he's laid out in his word, the law. You're attacking the, the promises that he's made. And then you're attacking God's purity or his righteousness. You're attacking... So that's the kind of integrity of God laid down into his people, his promise, and his purity. So we'll read Romans 3, chapters 1 through 8. So go there and turn there in your Bibles. It'll also be on the screen. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. It'll be on the screen in ESV. And if you have a different translation, that's all right. All right, so chapters 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what value... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That unrighteousness to inflict, or that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would uh, speak uh, through your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would uh, open us up to the truth of it, and that you would uh, speak through me as the teacher, and that we would hear what we need to hear this morning and draw us closer to you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so knowing there will be an objection... Paul starts asking some questions, and the first question that comes up is, what advantage is there to being Jewish then? Because he's kind of sort of like reigned on their parade. It's like he said, there, it would almost seem like there is none. He says, after all he said, which is basically your Jewishness will not save you, you know, it's like this was an attack on God's people, they would say. So how could you say these things? Now, now, this, this would be shocking for them to hear that there's no advantage because they know what the Scripture said. And we have to kind of give them credit for that. They knew that they were chosen by God over all the other nations. I'll just put up on the screen a few of countless examples. So, Exodus 19.6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's God speaking to Israel. Deuteronomy 14.12, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And then another one in Psalm 135.4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. So we can see that it's not far-fetched or wrong for Paul to bring up these questions that he knows are coming because we see very clear theme in Scripture that Israel is indeed chosen of God above all other nations. They are his people marked out for his purposes, his treasured possession, and they knew it. But the issue is they knew it. <laughs> and it was kind of this sense of like the cocky athlete that knows they're good. You know, like when you say something, you know what I mean? Like you say, yeah, they're good, and they know it. It's like the athlete who walks around kind of with their nose in the air where they're going to start tripping over stuff because they just know they're good, right? It's this, this cocky sort of attitude. I know not all of us in this room have played sports or athletes, but long ago I would have considered myself one, and it was always annoying to me that it's like I tried to work hard to be better, but yet there was ones that just seemed to be given natural talent, and they were lazy. They were, I'm just going to be honest, they were lazy, and they made us mad who were actually trying to work for something, and they're lazy, but they still did pretty well because they had this natural ability, and it was annoying, <laughs> right? Some of you probably know what I'm talking about. There, there are few, few people even over my time coaching where I've said, man, if they really just put the work in, they would go really far, but they were lazy, and, and they were just content with what they were given, with what, what they were riding the coattails of that natural talent, so to speak. 
But that talent only takes you so far. When it comes time to compete against the best of the best, then those who worked hard usually succeeded. So that's sort of what's happening here. I know all analogies break down, but they were chosen by God. They were given this natural talent, so to speak. And it's not really something they earned or worked for. It was just given to them. And because this was their attitude, they thought the fact that they were chosen by God was enough to save them. They believed they can live any way they wanted and that God was obligated to save them because they were simply Jewish. And then the Apostle Paul reigns on their parade and says, not so fast. In fact, the end of chapter 2 does just that, saying a true Jew is one who has their heart changed. A true Jew is a Jew on the inside. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's always a heart issue, church. Always. It's not heritage. It's not religion. It's not being part of a church. I like to say this. You've heard me say it before. God needed to perform divine heart surgery. That's circumcision of the heart. So Paul just lobs a grenade into their thinking. And so you think that maybe he's setting up the answer of this question of what advantage does the Jew have to be nothing? You don't. It would seem as that's what he's saying. You're on the same playing field as everyone else. So you don't have any advantage. Problem is, that's not what he says at all. What advantage? The answer, much in every way. But looking at the story of the Jew historically, <laughs> it would seem that there was little advantage to being Jewish. This is going to be pretty lengthy. I shortened it, but I thought it was important to kind of understand maybe some context. I came across this week sort of a historical timeline of the Jewish people. And again, I shortened this, so it's not complete by any means, uh, but I just want to read a, a, a little bit of it here to give you an idea. So the Jews were slaves in Egypt for 400 years under the bondage of Pharaoh. We're familiar with that. And when they were led from Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years until an entire generation of them died off in the wilderness, having no home. Also pretty familiar. They were slaughtered and taken captive by the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians. After returning from captivity in Babylon, they set out to rebuild their land from the rubble and were mocked and harassed and hindered and unaided in their efforts. They were dominated by the Greeks who worked to desecrate their religion, their priesthood, their holy places. Their babies were massacred by Herod. Their land was oppressed by Roman legions. They were utterly devastated under the power of Rome. In AD 70, their city of Jerusalem was destroyed. One million, according to Josephus, were murdered. 100,000 remaining fugitives from that sacking of the city were sold into slavery. Many more died in the gladiator games sponsored by Rome. In 115 AD, the Jews of Cyrene, Egypt, Cyprus, and Mesopotamia rose up against Rome and tried to defeat Rome, but were unsuccessful. And so Hadrian, the emperor, destroyed 985 towns in Palestine and slew at least 600,000 men. More perished through the starvation, through disease, and fire. So many were sold as slaves that their price dropped to that of a horse. For two centuries, they were oppressed under the Byzantines. Heraclitus banished them from Jerusalem in 628 and endeavored to exterminate them again. Leo the Assyrian, around 723, gave them the choice between Christianity and banishment. When the first crusade was launched in 1096 to recapture the holy places from the Ottoman Turks, the crusaders entered the Jewish settlements and trampled 3,000 Jews to death under horses' hooves. And they did so in the name of Christianity. 
1254, King Louis banished them from France. In 1306, Philip expelled 100,000 more. During the scourge of the Black Death in 1348 and 1349, the charge was made that the Black Death came from the great, and the Great Plague was caused by the Jews who had poisoned the wells. And so they endeavored to slaughter the Jews, and many of them fled to Poland and to Russia. In 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain as Columbus was heading out to America. In 1496, they were expelled from Portugal. Soon after, all Western Europe was closed to them except a few spots in northern Italy and Germany. Toward the middle of the 17th century in Poland, more persecution broke out. And through the French Revolution, tended to emancipate some of the European Jews in around 1789 or so. Anti-Semitism continued in many areas, and particularly in the Ukraine early in the 1800s, there was massacring of Jews. And of course, it all came to a horrifying climax in World War II when six million of them were systematically exterminated. That's only a little bit of the history of the Jewish people. So obviously at the time of Paul's writing in Romans, only a few of these events had happened. But historically now we can look back and say, what advantage does the Jew have? And I think we can rightly answer that historically, not much at all. There isn't one. And then I've already mentioned at the end of chapter two that we see spiritually there isn't really that much of an advantage either. So just because they're God's chosen people doesn't necessarily mean they have a specific advantage. Being a physical descendant of Abraham and marked out by circumcision doesn't offer spiritual security. So what's the advantage, Paul? The advantage is much in every way because the Jews were entrusted with the word of God. Now just a little side note here. Some translations use the word their oracle. It's not necessarily a bad translation, but they can cause some confusion as we think oracle this day of like maybe fortune telling or mediums becoming possessed to tell futures or something like that. This is not what that's referring to here. Oracle is probably not the best word to use here, but in our context, it really just means sayings or words. I like how the NIV actually renders this. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And in that word, we read that the Jews were given the promises of God. They were given the covenants. They were given the laws. God led them. They were adopted as his special people. They, they served God by being his priests and his prophets. They were loved by God, cared for by God, given ways to deliver them from their sin by God. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned this in Amos 3, where God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And the first half of that verse is where they really like to stop. And this word known here is God is speaking to the Israelites. He's speaking to the nation. He goes, you have I known. And known is an intimate word. It's a, it's a closeness. It's a, it's a special relationship that is there. But because of that, he says, I'll also punish you for your iniquity or your sin. So the Jews were the bearer of God's promise. They had his word. But as commonly is said, with great privilege comes great responsibility. They had a great advantage, but they wasted it. They were entrusted with the word, but they were not trustworthy with it. 
In fact, you would have thought that this would have been absolutely guarded and cherished. Like they were given the very words of the living God. Man, you would think that they would always know where that was. And you can read in the Old Testament that sometimes they didn't even know where it was. Like they had, it's like, and when it was found, it was read. It was like, whoo, this is cool. But they didn't even, they didn't even keep track of it so to speak. You would have thought that there was, there was a high reverence that would be held for the word. It's like they treated it with less reverence than we treat our phone or our wallet or our keys. And we probably do too, if we're quite honest. If I misplace my Bible and my phone at the same time, which one am I looking for first? <laughs> you're like, I'll justify that. My Bible's on my phone. No, you know what you're talking about. So there... So there was a lack of reverence for what God had done. One commentator says it like this. The Jewish nation was to be the guardian of all that God revealed. Of all the nations of the earth, God had chosen the Jews to be the custodians of his redemptive plan for the human race. Some, I will say, or some will probably then make the charge that, well, okay, yeah, he gave him his word, but maybe his word's not enough. <laughs> not enough. The scripture is enough. I, in fact, God's attitude is that it's enough. In Isaiah 5, he says, What more could I have done for my people that I have not done? This is God saying, What more could there be? The answer to that is nothing. What God does is sufficient and perfect. He couldn't do anything more. He couldn't have done anything more for his people. This makes me think of the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. I encourage you to read that later. We're not going to go through it in huge detail now, but to kind of hit some of the high points there. So this is a feast. This is a dinner that's set up by a king for his son. And in the story, we can see very clearly that the king is God, the son is Jesus. And he's, and he's setting up this, this feast, and, and he says, he, I want you to go out and invite those who I've chosen. Go out and invite all those that we have picked here so they can come celebrate. But those that were invited paid no attention and they went their own way. In fact, some of them even killed the king's servants who were doing the inviting, which made the king sort of angry, and he sent out his army to kill those that did that and burn their city. Kind of an interesting historical thing now. That's exactly what happened in 70 AD, so the parable kind of has some, some historical context there. But to continue, so after this, the king says, go out now and invite as many as you can find. Just go out and fill this banquet hall. Just, just go get everybody you can find to come celebrate. Get, the, get this place filled with guests. So why do I mention this? Because I think this parable illustrates what Paul is talking about here. The wedding feast is heaven. The Jews were the ones that were invited, but they didn't accept the invitation. And they ended up killing the Messiah. The Jews were the ones that were invited, but they didn't accept it. So God opens up the, to the rest of the world. He opens it up to the church. Israel had the advantage, but they didn't live up to the privilege, so they lost out on the blessing. We can think about that in our own lives. What advantages do we have, but we don't live up to those privileges, so we lose out on the blessing? Church, I'm sure you can see the application here. What advantage do we have as the church? Well, historically, the church has been persecuted. We don't have much advantage. Now in America... So we have been blessed, and our story is unique to a lot of the rest of the world. So spiritually, maybe does the church have any advantage? No, not in the sense of the church that we can, we can call ourselves Christians or Baptists or any other denomination you'd like, 
that in itself doesn't give us an advantage either. Similar to the Jews' heritage, our church affiliation doesn't save us. So, like the Jews, people can say, well, then what advantage is there in the church? What do I need the church for? Well, practically, you get to be with a lot of really great people. That's just, that's, that's kind of a nice thing. But more importantly, you get to hear the word of God. That's a great advantage. It's a great advantage. It goes back to the Bible that we hold. That's the advantage. And I would say we even have a greater advantage than the Jews at that time because we have the full, complete revelation of God that we hold in our hands. They had the Old Testament. We have the full, final, complete revelation of God. And we sometimes lose it on our shelves. We have been blessed with the word so abundantly that we as a society or even as a church, I think, can lack reverence for it. I think we take it for granted. I know it's been true in my life. And I like, and, and, and like the Jews, so many people in churches and all over the world trust in the church. They trust in the church and in the blessings of the church and the good things that are in the church. They become part of the church family and, and, and they think, okay, now I'm saved. I mean, I went to Awana as a kid. I mean, I went to youth group and, and my, or my parents went to church. So therefore, I'll just trust in the church since there was some sort of involvement, whether myself or others close to me, that, that'll do it. It's the same error the Jews made, trusting in something that could never save. And the same is true now. It's not about our church involvement or our family's involvement. It's about our heart and what we've done with Jesus. So to sum it up, it would seem that the first objection or question that Paul wants to address here really has to do with God's integrity. Really, all of these have to do with God's integrity because the Jew is going to say, you are doing away with God's law. You're doing away with God's word because we are special. God says so, Paul. And you're saying we're not. You're attacking his people. And next, he's going to attack, they're going to charge that he attacks their promises. So Paul continues to the next possible objection, and it's centered around God's promises or his faithfulness. So it says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So in other words, the question being asked is, if some Jews are unfaithful, does then God change his mind? Does God change his mind and become unfaithful and go back on his promises to his chosen people? This would be the same line of argumentation the Jew would have towards Paul's message. Surely God can't be unfaithful. And leaning on the Old Testament, you could see the point of this objection. God's promises are so numerous to the nation of Israel that it would seem shocking to them that they're not secure in those promises. So in essence, does the unfaithfulness of people make God unfaithful? The answer to that, Paul gives, is by no means. And I think he would have shouted that. God forbid absolutely not. May it never be. Not at all. However you want to translate that. This is a very strong way to say no. And this is not the first time we'll be seeing that phrase this morning. God has not gone back on his promises to Israel. 
But because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, God has put off the fulfillment of some of those promises to redeem and restore Israel. Now, some would say the church has replaced Israel, but that view, in my assumption, has to assume that God would sort of go back on his promises and change things a bit. Speaking about the nation of Israel, God says this in Zechariah 12, 10, And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. And it goes on, but this clearly can't be speaking about the church. As well as we can look practically at the history of the Jewish people, if, if God was done with them, if God was done with the Jewish people and said, okay, and it's now the church, it's not, it's not, Jews, it's not the Israelites anymore, then they would have been annihilated already. A few moments ago, I just went through the quick history of the hardships of the Jewish people, but God has always protected and saved them from complete annihilation. Not to mention, the nation, after almost 2,000 years of Israel not being a nation, became a nation in 1948. So God's not done with his people Israel. We'll see future fulfillment. All that to say, all that to say, if the blessing of a promise has failed to materialize, it was because God's people did not believe and obey the conditions of the promise. But their unbelief does not prevent God from ultimately bringing about what he promised to the nation. So unbelief does not make God unfaithful. It does not do away with what God has ultimately promised. He will fulfill what he has said. And when we get to Romans 11, we will be able to further go into the study of this and further into the depths of this. But notice what Paul says in our text this morning. He says, God is right. God is right. God is true, even if everyone else is a liar. Basically what he's saying. God is the perfect standard, even in his judgment. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 51, a psalm that we visited already in our series. This is David's psalm of repentance after committing adultery and murder. David says in that psalm, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Speaking that to God. Against you and you only? We think, wait a minute. Now clearly David wronged Bathsheba. He really wronged Uriah as he orchestrated his murder. And he abused his power. And I'm sure along the way he wronged other people as well. But that's all true, but his ultimate offense, he understands. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil what's in your sight. But with a heart of repentance, David acknowledges that. And he acknowledged that anything God decided about him would be just. God would be justified in his words and prevail in his judgment. David doesn't reject or argue with divine justice because he understands the Lord's verdict, the Lord's judgment is always right. And after David's incident with Bathsheba, he lived a life that was certainly anything but trouble-free. The baby that was formed from that union died. His other son tried to kill him and take his throne. He spent much of the time running from enemies, crying out to God to help him often from the caves, but all of this, David would not say God is unjust because God judged him. David, though not a perfect man, is simply saying that God is always right, no matter what, even if he's punishing the king, the man after God's own heart, the example that we go to a lot of times, one that would, one that would be held up as like maybe the greatest Jew. This one said, 
it's always right for God to judge, even if it's the king. But there were some promises made to David. We talked about the judgment against David, but there were some promises made to David, wasn't there? There was a future king that was going to sit on the throne, the Messiah. Jesus Christ came. And now we have that covenant that God made with David being realized. God keeps his promises. He will fulfill what he said he's going to do. So where are we at? So far to review, we have Paul ultimately defending God's integrity. He knows the arguments that are going to come against him. The Jews will say that he's attacking the law or he's attacking scripture. It will say that he's ultimately attacking God's people. But he says, now you have the advantage of the revealed word. Then Paul says that the Jews will say he's attacking the promises, but Paul will say, no, may it never be. Your unfaithfulness doesn't make God unfaithful. He will fulfill all that he said still. So this brings us to the third part of our text this morning, the attack on God's righteousness or purity. And this is the, long, the longer section of our text, so we'll just go ahead and read it again. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world or how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So notice the parenthetical statement there that's, that's in parentheses. It's, it's, I speak in a human way. Paul put that statement in there in the middle of the verse, in verse 5, to say that I'm giving you human logic here. Like, this is what's coming. This is human logic. This is reasoning that comes from a depraved man. This is, this is a foolish line of thinking. It's the kind of thinking that comes from man, not God. So I'm, I'm telling you that. So you know that. Because it's, it's not a good line of thinking. So, and when the, so the accusation is that Paul was attacking the purity of God. Essentially, what's being charged against him is this, if Israel's sin brings God glory, then you're saying God needs man's sin to bring glory to himself, and that's blasphemy. Paul, you're doubting the righteousness or purity of God. Not only that, but if our sin demonstrates the righteousness of God, how could he judge us? Why would he punish sin? He's not unrighteous, is he? These are the questions. They would say, if God's faith, faithfulness shines against my unfaithfulness, then how can God ever punish me for giving him such a great opportunity to show his glory? It just wouldn't be fair for God to judge <laughs> on people who give him an opportunity to display his glory, would it? This is a human way of thinking. This is why Paul said, I speak in a human way, because man is always looking for a way to justify his sin. It just kind of is natural for us. And these are the objections that Paul anticipates. So what's his response? We've seen it before. It's kind of become a theme. May it never be? Absolutely not. Verse 8 says, why not do evil so good may come? <laughs> yes, Paul is kind of role-playing here with what the Jewish accuser is going to say to him, but clearly these were real charges that had been brought to him before. Otherwise, he wouldn't be bringing them up. These are not purely hypothetical. These were real. They basically said that the gospel of grace and mercy that Paul was preaching gives everybody license to sin. 
No doubt there were some in those days that claimed to know Jesus, but yet were living in such a way like that. In fact, the book of Jude is largely about false prophets and false preaching and teaching. In verse 4 of the book of Jude, it says, false teachers pervert the grace of God and make it a license to sin, denying Jesus. So clearly, evidence of a false teacher is one who turns God's grace into a license to sin. And this is certainly not what Paul is advocating for. In fact, if we skip ahead a little bit in Romans, he deals with this again. In, verse, in, in chapter 6, actually it's the end of chapter 5 into, into chapter 6. It'll go up on the screen here. He says, now that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Then we go to chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Kind of a common theme. By no means. <laughs> By no means. Absolutely not. God forbid it. Heck no. It's a strong statement. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So the law came in and revealed sin, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But this is not where Paul ends the statement. <laughs> Opening in chapter 6, he parallels with what we've been talking about in chapter 3. Should we continue to sin so grace may abound? Again, a very familiar statement. Absolutely not. Because how could those who died to sin still live in it? They're two opposites. So in no way is Paul teaching that the gospel of grace is a license to sin. Paul knows for a professed Christian to live in continual, unrepentant sin is a certain mark that he is not saved. Furthermore, if sin is what brings glory, then sin becomes good. <laughs> and if sin is good, then what's the need for grace? Without sin, there's no need for judging, so clearly Paul is not teaching that God's purity demands sinful people. But this is the sort of objection that he gets. And he ends with a brief but devastating verdict. Those who teach this, those who have given up on all morality, they are condemned. So, Paul, in these first three chapters, has thus gone through the categories of humanity. The immoral people, the moral people, the Jew, and everyone else. We'll just say now it's everybody. Sin has condemned them all because sin is devastating. And next week, the picture does not improve for the Jewish people. As Paul will continue to push, as he will say to the Jew, you are under sin, and all the law did was show you that, not justify you. The bad news keeps coming. But verse 21 is coming. <laughs> there is a turn. But this morning, he answers his own argument, saying that God's people do have a great advantage because they have the scriptures. They have and the scriptures reveal that the promises are still valid because the character of God demands it. God is still righteous and pure even though he judges sin. So what does this mean for us today? Well, again, church, we have a great advantage because we have the word of God. And it's not the same word of God that the Jews had, but the complete and final full revelation, as I already mentioned, that God has given to man. What a great privilege if you're sitting here today, you have the benefit of the church, and you have a benefit of a church here that has preached the word of God for close to 70 years. But understand this, just hearing the gospel, just hearing the word preached, and belonging to a church, whether a member or not, taking communion or being baptized, 
doesn't save you. Going through the motions, as Brent sort of mentioned a few weeks ago, going through the rituals is not what saves. It must be a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And in your heart, your heart must be circumcised. There must be that divine heart surgery that takes place. God has to do a work in there. And we have his word which reveals his promises to us. And we have his word that reveals his faithfulness, his righteousness to us. He is righteous and faithful always. And that's what, is, and that's what's, that's what it's always been about. That's what it's always been about, the heart. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was a perfect man. Oh, by any means, was, he wasn't perfect. We know that. But he repented and fell on his face before God and grieved his sin to plead to the one to him who is the one that was able to forgive and do anything about. He didn't appeal to his Jewishness. He didn't appeal to the, the other things. He didn't appeal to anything else but God and his mercy. And scripture is clear that we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's in this chapter, just a few verses down. But Jesus took the penalty of that sin. What, was, what we owed is now no longer owed because Christ paid that on the cross when he bore the wrath of God. He bled and he died, and we celebrated last week that he rose again. He did not stay dead. He raised and he conquered death to give us hope and life. So church, there's really bad news. <laughs> We've been on kind of a bad news wagon here for a little bit. Sin exists and it condemns us to hell, but... Oh, but the sweet grace and power of Christ overpowers it all. And that's really good news. That is the greatest news. It all comes down to trusting Jesus. It all comes down to repenting of our sin that separates us from God. Trust in nothing else. Trust in nothing else but the gospel of Jesus Christ to save you because nothing else can. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the bad news because <laughs> it makes the good news that much sweeter. Um, I thank you that you have, uh, that you have come, that you've rescued, that you provided that way of salvation that we in no way on our own could do. And Lord, I thank you for the examples in Scripture that you give us to show that you are always faithful, to show that you are righteous, to show that, that God, there is nothing else we can trust in. Not our, not our family, not our church, not our heritage, not anything. It all comes back to you. So I pray, Lord, that if there are those here this morning that have yet to do that, that you would work in their heart as only you can. And for those that have done that, Lord, encourage us once again. Make the gospel afresh once again in us that we would be encouraged as we go out to, to be so excited about that that we don't hide that. We don't lose that excitement, but we tell others. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.